0: 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 988, 1 Thessalonians 5, we've come to our final message on 1 Thessalonians five nineteen, which if you visit your regular, or if you're visiting with us, I, I don't typically take 10 weeks on one particular due to the nature of our particular study right now, that we spent 10 weeks reflecting on one verse. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Go back to the previous slide, if you would. And let's pray um, before we study God's word. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the gift of your Spirit. Uh, Lord, of all the things that we can and should be thankful for, um, Jesus' work on the cross and in the empty tomb, and the Spirit's work in our hearts are some of those things that we ought to be most exceedingly grateful for. Lord, we do pray your blessing now on this message. Please help us, Lord, to study your word, to reflect deeply on what your word has to say to us. Help me, Lord, to preach with power and clarity and work through this to transform us for your glory. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 says this, Do not quench the Spirit. May God give us ears to hear his word. Last week I was listening to a sermon and the preacher said something that really got me thinking. He said all true Christians believe in the Trinity, but most Christians misunderstand the Trinity. A lot of Christians imagine the Father as the angry God, the Son as the nice God, and the Spirit as the weird God. The more I reflected on that pastor's quote, the more I think he's right. A lot of Christians, they imagine God the Father as this angry judge with this great big long beard and angry eyebrows kind of on a mountaintop and he can't wait to destroy humans. They imagine Jesus as this meek and mild shepherd often wearing this long flowing robe and with perfectly combed blonde hair. And they imagine the Holy Spirit as basically the force in Star Wars who makes people do really bizarre things when he takes hold of them. Do you know any Christians who tend to imagine God that way? Is that the way you tend to imagine God? The Father is the angry one, the Son is the nice one, and the Spirit is the weird one. Well, remedying that wrong and unbiblical view of who God is is a major part of my job as a pastor. And I hope that as you've attended church here, year after year, your understanding of who God is is more and more shaped by God's Word and not by your imagination. In this particular series, we've been studying the person and work of the Holy Spirit, For 10 weeks now, we've discussed who he is and what he does so that we can rightly relate to him and align our lives to his ministry. But as they say, all good things must come to an end, and we conclude this morning this long and hopefully edifying series on your relationship with the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you personally that I have found preparing and preaching these sermons incredibly helpful. Uh, this is one of the things I love about being a pastor. Um, as I prepare Bible studies, prepare sermons, it actually feeds my own soul. I mean, what other job has such benefits? Let me tell you where we're going this morning. First, I've got three final points on the Holy Spirit that I want to get to you. Uh, you'll remember last week, I, to conclude this series, came up with a list of like, what are the last things I want everybody to understand. Uh, and I had six, six of those, so I divided it up into two, and we did three last week and three this week. So that's where we're going first. But then second, we're going to finally get to the verse that inspired this entire series. First Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Holy Spirit. What does that mean in context? And more importantly, how can we obey that? How can we avoid quenching the Holy Spirit? Lord willing, that's where we're going. And I'd ask you to pray for me for help while I preach that God would work in every heart. So first, three final, vital truths about the Holy Spirit. And the first of these is this. Realize that the gift of the Spirit is an expression of Jesus' love for you. I hope this is something that stays with you long after this series is over. Realize that the gift of the Spirit is an expression of Jesus' love for you. Now, has it ever crossed your mind that the Holy Spirit is an entirely undeserved gift that God was not required to give us? I mean, plants and animals don't engage with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't seem as if the holy angels enjoy the gift of the Holy Spirit. The saints in the Old Testament, while they certainly benefited from the Spirit's work and were regenerated, transformed by him, they were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit like we are today. We stand in a position of incredible privilege, and again, this was an entirely undeserved gift that God was not required to give us. That's one of the things that most overwhelms me about the grace of God. All the gifts that we appreciate, especially this Thanksgiving week. You know, think about this. All the gifts that we appreciate that God gives us, he was not required to give any of them to us. It's not as if there's a God above God saying, "Give these folks these gifts." No, out of his pure generosity, he blesses us. And the Spirit's definitely in that category. Listen to what Jesus says in John 16:7. In John 16:7, Jesus says this. I tell you the truth, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, this is something I want us to think about. And and this is so wild, I almost had to think about it before I said it, because I, I don't want to lead people astray. But this passage seems to be saying this. The Holy Spirit dwelling within you is actually better than Jesus walking beside you about that i don't think there's any other way to understand that verse that we just read the holy spirit dwelling within you is actually better than jesus walking beside you and if that statement is just a totally foreign language to you if it makes no sense at all and if you've not experienced anything of the sort make that right Uh, look into this and and, and hopefully seek to experience this i think this is exactly what the bible means Many, many times people think, man, wouldn't it be great to have Jesus right here in front of us? You know, we could walk with him, talk with him, uh, see his miracles. And I agree, that would be pretty awesome to experience. But you think about it, that alone can't transform you the way that the spirit working within you can. You can think of the Pharisees. They spent an awful lot of time observing Jesus, hearing his teaching, seeing his miracles, but that didn't change them at all. And in fact, they were just hardened in their sin and went on to murder Jesus. Now, to emphasize this reality that the gift of the Spirit is an expression of Jesus' love for you, I want to do something a little bit unusual. I'd like to read you a brief paraphrase of a book I've been reading in my devotions. In my devotions, I've been reading this book called The Heart of Christ by Thomas Goodwin. I actually finished it about 6 30 this morning. Remarkable book on Jesus' love, and he's got a beautiful section in it uh, on the way in which the Spirit is a gift of Jesus' love. And, I, and I've paraphrased it into kind of modern terms. You know, it was written back in the 1600s, so you know it's not the kind of language we speak today. So for the next maybe three to five minutes, realize I'm paraphrasing stuff that comes from a pastor from a long, long time ago. But here we go. Let us consider together what Jesus did as soon as he had returned to heaven and sat down at God's right hand. He abundantly fulfilled all that he had promised in his final sermon to the apostles, recorded in John 14 through 16. He immediately poured out his spirit on the disciples, and that richly, like the Apostle Paul says in Titus 3.5. And realize this spirit is still active today. In our preaching, in your hearts, in the hearing and reading of God's word, in prayer and worship, his spirit is persuading you that Jesus loves you today. In fact, the spirit is working in and through all of his ministries as a guarantee of Jesus' love for you. Every work of the Spirit in our hearts, it's proof that Jesus' heart today is toward us exactly what it was that we read about in the Gospels. For it's the Spirit who blesses our sermons, Bible readings, prayer, worship, and so forth. And that Spirit, he comes in Jesus' name and on Jesus' behalf, and he does everything by Jesus' commission. I mean, think about it this way. Have you ever felt the Spirit move in your heart, say, during a sermon, during a Bible reading, during prayer? Who was it who moved you? It was the Spirit, the Spirit who speaks in Jesus' name and on his behalf. When you pray, it's the Spirit who's moving you to pray. More than that, he's the one making intercession in our hearts while we pray. For many of us, when we eat the Lord's Supper, the Spirit shows us Jesus' face smiling upon us. Have you ever had that experience? I hope and pray that you do at least once in your life. And through that smiling face, we see Jesus' heart toward us, and we leave the Lord's Supper rejoicing that we've been with Jesus that day. That, too, is a work of the Spirit. You could think of the entire New Testament along these lines. The entire New Testament was written after Jesus' ascension to heaven. But the entire New Testament was inspired by God's Spirit. Therefore, look at the New Testament, and especially its promises, as a revelation a revealing of jesus heart toward you who jesus was toward tax collectors and sinners who he was toward the woman caught in adultery or toward prostitutes he is that today toward you who believe and considering this can greatly strengthen our faith that jesus loves us just the same what's the end of the thoughts of thomas goodwin what all this means practically is this every time you experience the spirit working in your heart take that as it were as a love note from jesus every time you say, you experience the spirit say convicting you of sin leading you to repentance illuminating your mind helping you to understand and apply god's word moving you to pray for something imagine it almost as if it's a text message from jesus saying you are my beloved son you are my beloved daughter with you i am well pleased And if you get that, I think this is part of how Romans 8.16 is fulfilled. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Brothers and sisters, realize that the gift of the Spirit is an expression of Jesus' love for you. Quickly, a second vital truth about God's Spirit. Second, realize that walking in the Spirit is the secret to rejoicing in your sufferings. Realize that walking in the Spirit is the secret to rejoicing in your sufferings. Now, the Bible universally recognizes that our world is filled with pain and suffering. This is actually one of the more helpful things about biblical Christianity. It doesn't try and hide this, doesn't try and say that suffering's a mirage. It's up front and say, says this world is a veil of tears, filled with disease and illness, betrayal and disappointment, sin and death, thorns and thistles, wars and rumors of war, and a million other expressions of suffering. This is a world where babies die, where loving mothers get cancer, where godly men are unjustly imprisoned, where deceptive con men oppress and take advantage of the innocent. Again, the Bible never seeks to deny any of that, but recognizes it as a harsh reality. But at the same time, the Bible also calls believers to some pretty crazy things when it comes to suffering, specifically to rejoice in suffering, to count suffering joy, James 1, two count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Romans 5.3, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. 1 Peter 1.6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, you think about those two truths, that this world is filled with pain and suffering and that we're to rejoice in our pain and suffering, and that can almost drive you insane. We're to rejoice in cancer, rejoice in miscarriage, rejoice in job, the death of a loved one, a wayward child, some crippling illness, uh, to, to unbelieving hearts. Such thoughts are ludicrous in the extreme, and not a few people have abandoned Christianity entirely for this reason. But this, brothers and sisters, is where the Holy Spirit makes all the difference. Actually, it's more than that. This is one of those places that, without the Holy Spirit, you simply cannot do what the Bible calls you to do. It's impossible. You simply cannot rejoice in your suffering without the help of the Spirit. But thank God, this is one of the very reasons why God gave us his spirit, so that in and through the pain, in and through the tears, in and through the grief, we can persevere believing that the joy that is set before us is greater than the suffering that we have to endure, and that what's more, the suffering of this present age isn't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Listen to 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Galatians five twenty 22, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. As I reflected on this idea, maybe the most helpful passage that came to my mind is 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and following. Thankfully, this passage is quite clear, but let me connect this passage to the Holy Spirit. Bring up that slide, if you would. 2 Corinthians 1.3. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also will share in our comfort. Now, as we read that passage, comfort comes up ten times, uh, which is a lot. That's pretty concentrated. But here's something important to remember. What was one of the titles that Jesus used for the Holy Spirit? Remember this? Comforter. Comforter. John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now, putting these pieces together, this is what I think the Bible is teaching. Suffering is coming. Really painful suffering is coming. And this is going to sound awful cynical. It's not. If you haven't experienced really painful suffering yet, just live along long enough, and you will. This is the world we live in. But in the midst of that suffering, God will comfort you if you're a believer. He'll comfort you and equip you to comfort others when they go through similar suffering. Now, how will God comfort you? He'll use a variety of ways. He'll use good friends, loved ones. He'll use the promises of Scripture. He'll use prayer. He'll use your church family. He'll use providential blessings. All sorts of things to equip you in your suffering to comfort others. But the most important factor in comforting you in your suffering will be the Holy Spirit. This will be one of his most important jobs. And if you can learn how to take advantage of the Spirit's resources and align your life to his ministry, you'll be able to rejoice in your sufferings and to count your trials joy. So here's the practical application of what I'm saying. Learn to walk in the Spirit now before the suffering comes so that you'll be prepared to walk in the Spirit when the suffering arrives. You get that? I mean, you don't want to try and sort this out when the suffering hits. You know, life will be too chaotic, it'll be too crazy, your mental whatnot will be all messed up. Learn how to walk in the Spirit now, before the suffering comes, so that when it arrives, you're already walking in the Spirit and already prepared. This is the secret to rejoicing in your suffering, so brothers and sisters, do everything that you can to learn how to walk in the Spirit now. You'll be glad when the suffering comes. One final vital truth about the Spirit. Let us praise God that the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. Whatever else you learn about the Holy Spirit, don't forget this one fact, that the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. Now, I want to explain to you one way that I think a lot of believers get the work of the Spirit wrong. Okay, this is not what I think you should believe. A lot of believers think that the Holy Spirit dwells in us now primarily to make us considerably more godly than the Old Testament saints. They think that Old Testament saints, since they weren't indwelt by the Holy Spirit, were severely limited in their ability to be godly, almost like cavemen when it comes to godliness. But we New Testament believers were indwelt by the Spirit, and that enables us to be dramatically more godly. You ever encounter people that think this way? I mean, it's possible you're thinking that way right now. I've come to believe the Bible does not teach anything like this at all. Well, yes, we knew testament believers are indwelt by the holy spirit and old testament believers were not that's not to enable us to be considerably more godly it's for a different purpose why do i say that well you think about it the new testament constantly points to old testament saints as examples of godliness were to emulate i mean just you know scan your brain and think through the examples that you know passages like romans 4 or hebrews 11 james 5 second peter 2 we can and should emulate say the faith of abraham or the boldness of noah The submissiveness of Sarah, the prayer life of Elijah, uh, the courage of Esther, the love of Ruth. The New Testament never looks at Old Testament believers as sort of primitive in their godliness, but as wonderful examples to imitate. What's more, when you read the Psalms, King David experienced an intimacy with God and a desire for God that is rarely experienced today, even by those of us who are indwelt by God's Spirit. I mean, I don't know, honestly, if I've ever met anybody in my entire life who longed for God like David longed for God, or who repented uh, with the depth of grief like David repented in, say, Psalm 51. He knew God better than virtually any saint I've ever known, and he wasn't indwelt by God's Spirit. So while, yes, we are indwelt by God's Spirit, and the Old Testament believers were not, that does not mean that we're considerably more godly or or have capacities for godliness that they seem to lack. What then is the difference? Well, when you look at the New Testament passages that talk about the Spirit coming on believers in a new and different way, they're not connected to godliness, but they are connected to missions. This is a curious connection I'd encourage you to explore further on your own. Evidently, the Spirit dwells in us, not primarily to make us more godly than, say, David or Moses, but so that we would be witnesses in the entire earth. Where do we see this? Well, first think of the Great Commission, Matthew eight, uh, pardon me, 28, 19, and 20. Jesus says, Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now think about that final promise, I'm with you always to the end of the age. How is Jesus with us now? He's with us now by his indwelling Spirit. But in this particular passage, why is he with us always? As we go forth making disciples of all nations, it's missions and evangelism. Here's another passage, John 20, 21 and 23, pardon me, 21 through 23. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, I recognize it's a curious passage, and I do think that certain parts of it apply only to the apostles, but clearly Jesus is sending them. And what does he send them to do? He sends them to go make disciples of all the nations. And what does he give them to enable them to do this? He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Here's one final one, Acts 1:8. We read this earlier in the service, but what does Acts 1:8 say? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Are you starting to see this theme, this connection? It does seem as if the Spirit indwells us not primarily to make us considerably more godly, but to make us good witnesses. We're temples of the Holy Spirit so that we'd shine the light of God's love and gospel into the entire world. We don't have time to explore this completely now, but I think this is the real point of the Spirit's gift of speaking in tongues. It was for missionary purposes. If you read the accounts of speaking in tongues in Acts... What they're doing is not some sort of like gibberish talk like, like you see in the YouTube videos. It was the ability to speak a foreign language that they hadn't previously learned so that those who do this foreign language could hear the gospel and believe and be saved. Let me just read Acts 2.7 and following. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Those are all actual locations and we know what languages they spoke in those locations. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. Why did God give them this gift? Again, it was not just gibberish. It was so that unbelievers could hear the great works of God, believe and be saved. The Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit, and if he dwells in us, he dwells in us to make us fruitful and effective gospel witnesses to all the nations under heaven. What this means is that an interest in global missions, it's not just for certain kind of cosmopolitan types who like world travel and exotic food. You know there are people like that. Um, that you know they like hanging out in airports. They like trying, uh, you know, Thai food and Chinese food and whatnot. They watch a lot of BBC. Nothing wrong with that at all. I'm not. I'm not criticizing that. But I'm just saying that that's not necessary for everybody. You know, you don't need to be into that. But don't look at an interest in global missions that way. Now, an interest in global missions is actually a fruit of the spirit. You realize that? An interest in global missions, the desire to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to see people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation saved, that is an evidence of the spirit at work in your lives. Henry Martin, the missionary to Persia and Bible translator who died sadly young at 30, he said this The spirit of Christ, call up that slide if you would. The spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. I know I've shared these statistics with you many times before, but I'll keep sharing them until we all have them memorized. Ours is a world of 8 billion people. Today, 3.2 billion of those have never heard of Jesus once. So were you to line the entire human race up, every third person would not know there is such a thing as a Bible, uh, would not know of anybody named Jesus, and would not know that salvation from sin is even possible. Of the 7,000 people groups currently existing today, 3,000 still have no access to the gospel. Of the 2,700 languages, uh, no, pardon me, 7,000 languages, 2,700 still don't have a single verse of Scripture in their language, which equals 380 million people. And of all the languages on the planet, only 318 have the entire Bible translated into their language. So pray, brothers and sisters, that God will raise up Bible translators. One last statistic only 1 out of every 1000 christian believers becomes a foreign missionary only 1 out of 1000 becomes and i'm not talking christian missionary to like the toughest parts of the world like the deepest darkest jungles to anywhere you know you become a christian missionary to germany 1 out of 1000 christians you can think through is that what's going on there is it possible god might be calling more than that the holy spirit is a missionary spirit But do you see this work of God's Spirit taking place in your life? Do you see an increasing desire, an increasing burden to see every knee bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord? Are you praying and giving and and strategizing to see more and more missionaries go out? And do you very sincerely have this willingness that were God to call me to be a foreign missionary, I'd be willing to say, here am I, Lord, send me the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit, but are you a missionary Christian? And are you fulfilling this purpose that God has called us to, to make disciples of all nations? You might never be a foreign missionary, and that's fine. God hasn't called every believer to be a foreign missionary. But again, a sign of spiritual health is doing what you can to give, go, pray, encourage others to go to the mission field. Well, those are the final major points on the Spirit that I wanted to make sure you understood in this series. Of course, there's so much more you can explore, and I do hope that for the rest of your Christian life, you continue to learn about the Holy Spirit and how to to engage with Him. Because of that, let me quickly recommend you a few books. These are the same books I recommended about a month ago, but in the event you weren't here, let's say you want to learn more about the Holy Spirit. Three quick options. First, a little booklet by R.C. Sproul. Who is the Holy Spirit? You can see it's probably not a whole lot deeper than what we've gone into in this series, um, but if you've appreciated it, this might be sort of good resources to hand on, have on hand to re- remind you of what we've talked about. That's Who's the Holy Spirit by R.C. Sproul. Second kind of an intermediate book, The Holy Spirit by Charles Ryrie. Uh, kind of, you know, it's, it's more like college level, but at the same time, it'll give you a lot to chew on. The Holy Spirit by Charles Ryrie. Last book, big book, The Coming of the Holy Spirit by Philip Jensen. And uh, this this book's big and thick. It's actually in our church library if you just want to flip through it, but it covers every passage in the Bible having to do with the Holy Spirit. It'll tell you pretty much everything you want to know. You probably won't agree with everything in it, uh, but if you've got a question, you know, say you come across some passage, it's got a little phrase on the Holy Spirit, and you're like, what in the world is that talking about? Uh, This book will address that. Check those out if you want to learn more about the Spirit and his work. Well, we're almost done, but all of this brings us to 1 Thessalonians 5.19. I know that that's kind of weird to think about, but the last 10 weeks have been sort of setting the context for making sense of 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Finally then, what does do not quench the Spirit mean? So We're going to close up this series. What then does do not quench the Spirit mean? Well, let me make a few quick comments. First, that verb quench, it obviously relates to fire and burning. You know, when we quench candles, we blow them out. Uh, When we quench a campfire, what do we do? We pour a bucket of water on it to extinguish it. If there's something burning and then we put some substance on it to put that fire out, that's what it means to quench. Now, the Bible frequently compares the Holy Spirit to fire. You've probably caught this. Isaiah 4.4, The Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Maybe most famously, Acts 2, three. they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Now, I think the reason why the Bible likens the Spirit to fire is because he does his work on the inside. Uh, it's almost like putting a candle in a lantern or a light bulb in a lamp. In those in whose lives he's working, he warms the heart to the things of God. He illuminates the mind to comprehend the truth of God. I hope and pray you've all experienced at least some of that. Well, what then does it mean to not quench the Holy Spirit? Well, there are a couple things we can say for sure that this does not mean. First, to not quench the Spirit, it does not mean that we sort of destroy the Holy Spirit in some sort of absolute sense. Uh, You know, we don't have the ability to kill the third person of the Trinity so that he ceases to exist. Uh, That would be absolute nonsense and would contradict the entire Bible. But second, I also don't think, don't quench the Spirit, it does not mean that we have the ability to completely drive the Spirit out of our lives. This is what Christians who believe you can lose your salvation actually claim. I'm I'm sure you are familiar with this, but there are several denominations that believe that true Christians have the ability to so sin that they lose their salvation. This would include Methodists, Wesleyans, Lutherans, most Pentecostals, Free Will Baptists, several other denominations. You can so sin and so lose your faith that you drive the Holy Spirit out of your life, and they try to prove that using 1 Thessalonians 5.19. And they reason this way. They say, look, this verse says, do not quench the Spirit. If I quenched a campfire, that means I completely extinguish it there's no more light no more heat in a similar way i through my sin can quench the holy spirit extinguish the holy spirit such that he leaves my life and i'm no longer the temple of the holy spirit you ever heard people talk that way what can we say in response to that Well, a couple of things first to think that we can completely drive the spirit out of our lives such that he like leaves and never comes back that would contradict many many other passages of scripture Ephesians 1.13, in him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You could go back to that entire sermon we did on the sealing of the Holy Spirit, and how the way in which once we're sealed, there's no unsealing it, even with our best efforts. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Maybe most clearly, Hebrews 13, 5, he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Additionally, realize the word translated quench here, it doesn't necessarily mean to extinguish to the point of non-existence, but it can mean simply to dampen, uh, to partially quench, if that makes sense. You know, you can partially quench a campfire without thoroughly extinguishing it. I mean, you remember your Smoky Bear commercials, don't you? This is actually a place where consulting different Bible translations is helpful. Let me show you how different Bible translations translate this phrase, and notice how not all of them assume the idea of completely extinguishing something. Bring up that slide if you would. For example, the CSB says, don't stifle the Spirit. The CEB, don't suppress the Spirit. The ERV, don't stop the work of the Holy Spirit. The EXB, don't hold back the work of the Holy Spirit. Good News Translation, do not restrain the Holy Spirit. The ICB, do not stop the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe my favorite one, this is the uh, Phillips translation, never damp the fire of the Spirit. The New Life Version, don't try to stop the work of the Spirit, and the New Living Translation, don't stifle the Holy Spirit. You look at those, none of those convey the idea of extinguished to the point of non-existence. They simply mean to oppose the Spirit's work, to suppress the Spirit's work, you see? So what do I mean, what, what do we think it means to quench the Holy Spirit? Well, here's what I think it means. When the Spirit's convicting you of some sin, And it could be taking place right now. But if you ignore that conviction and go ahead and sin anyway, that's quenching the Spirit. When he's prompting you to pray for something, to pray for someone, but you ignore that prompting and just carry on with your business, that's quenching the Spirit. When you're sitting in a sermon and the power is just overwhelming, you feel like God himself is dealing with your soul, but then you go away and forget all about it, you live no differently, that's quenching the Spirit. Here's another way to oppose the Spirit's work in your life, and I hesitated to say this, just so I don't destroy people with conviction, but I gotta say it. Another way to quench the spirit is by letting yourself be too tired to let him work in your life. Now, if you had a late night because you know you had an infant that wouldn't let you sleep, that's one thing. Nothing wrong with that, God understands that. But others of us stayed up way too late watching ridiculous television, watching Saturday Night Live, you know, maybe playing video games till three in the morning, and because of that you can't stay awake. Realize, I think that by doing that, you inadvertently oppose the work of the Spirit in your life. I can't think of one time where God's Spirit worked in my life in a powerful way, uh, and I was dozing off at the same time. All of these and more are ways whereby we oppose, we suppress the Spirit's work in our lives. We pour water on that fire that He's lighted in our hearts. And here's the scariest thing. You do that enough, and eventually you become insensitive to His work in your life. We talked about this in our sermon on conviction. By repeatedly ignoring the Spirit's work, you cauterize your conscience. You create calluses on your soul, and that's an incredibly dangerous position to be in. You think about it, how easy is it to sin when you feel absolutely no conviction? How easy is it to sin when there are zero pangs of guilt? It's incredibly easy, and I'm scared to say that we're sort of experiencing this on an entire nationwide level right now. Which is why all of us should be utterly terrified of quenching the Spirit and doing anything to oppose his work in our lives. A couple more quick thoughts here. As you all know, fire can be quenched not only by pouring water on it, but how? By cutting off its fuel supply, right? Remember this from elementary school? You can pour water on a fire, but you can also take away the fuel. That too will put the fire out. So also, we can quench the Spirit by neglecting the means of grace. Neglecting Bible reading, neglecting prayer, neglecting sermons, neglecting fellowship with God's people. I imagine you've all heard that old illustration of the one coal taken from the fire and put off toward the side, and before long it turned dark and cold. You can do that by neglecting the means of grace. One more, and I know this, this is kind of scary, but we've got to say it. I do think that there are ways that you can quench the Spirit's work in others' lives when you say, encourage them and lead them into sin or make fun of their commitment to godliness, or hinder their access to God's word, or discourage their prayers. In a way, you're sort of in a roundabout quenching the Spirit. And never forget Jesus' solemn warning in Matthew eighteen six: Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So what are we saying? Here's what we're saying. True Christians can so oppose the work of the Spirit that he becomes almost dormant in their lives. Yes, he's still dwelling there. Still, There's still the temple of the Holy Spirit, but it's as if he's in hibernation. Due to tolerated sin, due to a cauterized conscience, due to a neglect of the means of grace, it's as if the Spirit, he's, he, we don't even feel it anymore. I tend to think King David, after his sin with Bathsheba, is an illustration of this. I trust you're at least somewhat familiar with the main points of the account. David sees Bathsheba, lusts after her, takes her. She gets pregnant. He's like, oh no, what do I do? Puts together this plan to get Uriah killed. Marries Bathsheba, thinks he's covered his tracks. Realized from that point of his initial sin until Nathan confronts him, several months pass. Read Psalm 51 in the way that he describes this. Several months where he's quenching the Spirit, working against the Holy Spirit, refusing to repent, refusing to uncover his sin. True believers can do that, and it's possible that some of you are in that category this morning. Now, does this mean that a true believer can go on happily living in sin for decades on end? No, not at all. God loves his children, and he chastens them to teach them to obey. And I do think that in the lives of true believers, true Christians, God will do one of three things to wake them up and to resensitize them to the Spirit's work. What are these three things? Well, first, God might wake you up using church discipline. Praise God for church discipline. When we have so opposed the work of God's Spirit, so hardened our hearts uh, that we feel no pangs of guilt whatsoever, it's a loving thing for brothers and sisters to come around us, to encourage us, to admonish us, to pray for us, to bar us from the Lord's Supper, uh, to even put us out of the fellowship if necessary. God can use that to bring people to repentance and rescue them from self-destructive sin. A second means that God uses to wake up those who have quenched the Spirit is providential discipline. Providential discipline. And the examples of this are too many to illustrate. But some sickness, some illness, bankruptcy, prison. Really, I mean, again, there's no limit to what God can do. But again, this is a loving thing. God loves us too much to let us destroy ourselves in sin. And if we continue opposing the Spirit, quenching the Spirit, God will bring providential discipline into our lives. I think the last approach that God takes with believers who continue to oppose the Spirit's work in their lives is to literally take their lives, like literally kill them. There are several instances of this in Scripture. Uzzah, Ananias, and Sapphira, especially the believers at Corinth who are horsing around at the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it is better, both for the person and for the glory of God, to take them prematurely to heaven And real quick, I know that in the sovereignty of God, there is no prematurely, but you all know what I'm trying to say, to take them prematurely to heaven, then to allow them to continue on in self-destructive sin and blasphemy. So no, God's not going to let you go on forever oppressing the spirit. Now, in light of this, you might be wondering, you know, I think I've quenched the spirit in my life. What can I do? I've been ignoring his conviction, ignoring his promptings, neglecting to fuel his fire. And I don't want to experience any of those scary things you just described. What can I do? Well, I'm reminded of the church in Laodicea. When they had lost their first love, what did Jesus say? Repent and do the works that you did at first. Really, the only thing you can do is to pray for sensitivity of the Spirit and to start responding to the very faintest conviction. Do that. You know, if you're afraid, you know, I think, I'm, I, I think you just described me. Pray now, Lord, please make my heart soft and sensitive. Please scrape away those calluses, that cauterization. And as soon as you start feeling the slightest inkling to to repent, to pray, uh, to whatever, start responding then and there. And let me tell you, if you truly believe in the Lord Jesus, the Spirit's still there. Again, he's not left you. Over time, his fire will reappear. It'll grow, it'll grow, it'll grow until it's again burning brightly in your life. Brothers and sisters, let us pray for one another that we'd never quench the Spirit. Pray this for yourself, pray this for your fellow church members, pray this for me. Somebody start bringing this up on a regular basis during our prayer meetings. Pray that we'd never quench the Holy Spirit, but do everything that we can to remain sensitive to his work and to respond immediately. Now, In conclusion, we've said a lot about the Spirit over these last 10 weeks. The Spirit is a living, active person, a person with whom you, whoever you are, should seek to have a relationship. And hopefully you've learned much from this series about how to have a relationship with Him and how to align your life to His work. But in closing, I want to address one more time those of you who might be here today and who are not believers, who are not trusting in the Lord Jesus. If you're here today and you've not yet put your hope in the Lord Jesus, we are delighted you're here. Thank you for coming you're always welcome to be with us. In fact, there's nowhere we'd rather you be on a Sunday morning than here with us, 1045, hearing God's word, singing God's praises. But if you're here today and you are not a Christian, I hope you've caught what I've said about your relationship with the Holy Spirit. To put it bluntly, you are currently totally cut off from the Holy Spirit and His power. He's not currently in your life. It's as if you're a lantern, but there's no candle on the inside. You're a lamp, but there's no light bulb. That's you, and I... I, Hope to think that you feel and sense some of that right now. I mean, do you just sense there's no spiritual life going on in here? Yeah, there's a lot going on up here, but there's no spiritual... Can you sympathize with that? Listen to Jesus' invitation in John seven 37. we've come back to this passage time and time again, but listen to what Jesus says. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts... You thirst for the Spirit, for His work in your life? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Right now, Jesus is inviting you. He is calling you. Put your hope in him. Trust in him. Rely on him. He'll forgive you of all of your sins. He'll reconcile you to Almighty God and he'll give you your, his Holy Spirit who will begin changing you from the inside out. The Bible tells us that you were made to know God. You, all of you, made to know God, to have a relationship with the almighty maker of heaven and earth. That's why you exist. But the reality of it is you've sinned and rebelled against your creator. Try to live your life your own way. Thank you very much, God, for making me, but I'm going to live pretty happily without you. We've all done that. We do it every day. Now, because God is righteous, he must punish us for our rebellion. He must punish us for our sins. He'll pour out his wrath on us somewhat in this life, as some of us can testify, but far, far worse in the life to come. And unless we are forgiven, unless we are reconciled to God, we will, after this life, spend eternity in that real place called hell. But under these very circumstances, God, he still loved us. And he did something to reconcile the relationship we destroyed. God provided a savior for all of us, a savior who can actually reconcile us to God. God the Father sent God the Son down to earth. God the Son was born as a little baby, given the name Jesus. Jesus grew up as a little tiny infant, toddler, child, teenager, young man, adult man. He went through all the experiences and sufferings and afflictions that we experience, and yet without sin. But if you know the rest of the story, you know that he died a horrible death on a cross. He was in his mid-30s. He's unjustly arrested, unjustly tried, nailed hand and foot to a cross where he bleeds out and dies. But what the Bible tells us is that on that cross, Jesus was bearing the wrath of God in the place of sinners. This is how God can remain holy while forgiving those of us who rebel. By dying in our place, Jesus satisfies the demands of God's holiness so that God can then turn to those of us who believe and say, you're forgiven, we're reconciled, you are my child. Three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead to demonstrate that what I'm telling you right now is true. And now, in response, he is calling all of us, every last one of us, turn from your sins, trust in the Lord Jesus, be saved. Turn from your sin, rely on Jesus' death, rely on his resurrection, be made right with God right now. This is why Jesus came to earth, to make us right with God. And until we embrace the Lord Jesus, again, we are totally cut off from the Holy Spirit and his power to change us. So come to Jesus now. Come to Jesus now. Turn from your rebellion. Stop marching to the tune of your own drummer. Rely on what Jesus has done. Trust entirely in him and be made right with God right now. As always, if any of you would like to discuss any of this further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, talk to me at the door. I'll be there to greet people at the way out. on the way out. But one more time, trust in the Lord Jesus today and today receive the gift of God's Spirit. Let's pray together. Oh God, it has been a joy to reflect on the gift of the Spirit. Lord, again, it's overwhelming to think that you you were under no obligation whatsoever to give us the gift of your Spirit. But because you are so generous, so kind, so gracious, you've given us not only forgiveness, not only the sure and certain hope of heaven, but right now the Spirit to renew us, to transform us, to preserve us, to bear fruit in our lives, uh, to do a thousand other glorious things. Thank you so much for the gift of your Spirit. We pray for the remainder of our Christian lives, that we would continue to grow in our understanding of his work, that we'd continue to learn how to align our lives to him, that you'd help us to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we do pray that as this takes place more and more, your son and you, Father, would receive the glory. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.